Hello there, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the in the Pacific Northwest. And the day is the 13th of January, 2021. So this is part two of a um, lecture I'm doing all in one day. So I'm going to get right into it. We've been talking about glucocorticoids, the fear of conditioning response, aging, and the immune system. So I'm going to introduce a paper here that was published in Genes and Immunology, 2020, May. <clears throat> what is this paper going to tell us? Um, I've, I've discussed it a little bit in the past, so I'm just going to reiterate some of the basic key points to it. We know that glucocorticoid synthesis is multi-step process, which of course starts with the precursor cholesterol. And the cholesterol is going to be in the membrane. It's first delivered to the inner membrane of the mitochondria by a couple of transporter proteins. And the side chain is cleaved by a series of P450 cytochrome oxygenases. The glucocorticoids that are generated are varied depending on what cell type you have, but the first uh, stable form is pregnenolone. And then that's converted uh, by a series of four other uh, cytochrome P450 uh, oxygenases that uh, ends up being cortisol. Uh, we told you from this paper that glucocorticoids play a critical role in regulating the immune system. And all of that function is acting as a hormone. So they're working through the glucocorticoid receptor. That's different than what I talked about earlier today. We we're talking about neuromodulation, right? Which acts sometimes like a growth factor <clears throat> and more local after uh, synthesis of the, uh, particularly the CRF. So corticosteroids normally are producing adrenal gland. And what has been discovered in the last decade or so in uh, tremendous output of research is that glucocorticoids can be produced in many extra adrenal tissues. One of them are in immune cells and in skin. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be looking at um, more and more as we go, we deep, do a deep dive here. So we know that glucocorticoid production is regulated by ACTH and by the CRH. But now I'm going to tell you that the regulation is also associated with some pro-inflammatory cytokines, especially in the extra adrenal tissue where these cytokines are going to have receptors on the surface of the cells that are also going to be synthesizing the glucocorticoid, you see? So they're working in um, synchrony. You're synthesizing glucocorticoids as you are involved in an immune response, which is going to generate pro-inflammatory cytokine production and presumably some destruction of tissue that has either been invaded by a pathogen or that perhaps is going through a multinucleated or overexpressing pattern of activity, which could suggest to the surveillance mechanism of the immune cells that there's an oncogenic event occurring. So I also mentioned to you that the bioavailability of cortisol, which is the, the end product, major glucocorticoid in humans, 
is dependent on an interconversion to cortisone. I told you that was from the alcohol to the ketone. And it's basically conducted by one enzyme, by something called the 11-beta-HSD. So you get local and systemic glucocorticoid biosynthesis. And it can be stimulated by these pro-inflammatory cytokines. And that's really important to understand because this is believed how glucocorticoid uh, metabolism and the pro-inflammatory response work in tandem where the glucocorticoids ultimately will reduce the immune response by working all the way back at the level as a hormone can of controlling the transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6, a major player here. And a lot of work has been done on this um, pathway and in this particular nucleus of events in autoimmune diseases. And I mentioned that a couple of days ago as well, but the major ones that you normally consider, MS, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis, okay? So that's a, pre, that's a recap and a prequel to what we're gonna talk about. So now CRF1, <clears throat> okay, that receptor, uh, is involved with arousal, that is noting sensation, but it's also linked to anxiety, fear, a disruption of sexual behavior, and a disruption of sleep. Okay. The CRF receptor 2 is more associated with what's called slow adaptive recovery. And I'll talk about more that more later. And interestingly, appetite suppression. So you have a central pathway for CRF, and then you have peripheral pathways. And the peripheral pathway, of course, is going to lead to the activation of the HPA axis. And from the adrenal cortex, you're, of course, going to be synthesizing the cortisol, which is going to act negative against all the CRH activity. So... The corticotropin releasing factor or hormone comes from the paraventricular nucleus, right? That's the PVN, and that's in the hypothalamus. And it's released into the hypophyseal portal system, and it triggers the release of corticotropin, which is the ACTH. And it comes from the anterior pituitary via the stimulation, usually of the CRF. R1 receptor. The ACTH it synthesized, of course, will stimulate the secretion of glucocorticoid hormones, and that in that case is going to be cortisol. Um, and that's all going to come from the adrenal cortex. Now, increased glucocorticoid levels suppress the hypothalamic CRF transcription. And that's just a what's called a classical negative feedback loop. It works through the hippocampal and hypothalamic glucocorticoid receptors. So the neurotransmitter action, and there is that too of the CRF, on the CRFR receptor one can occur throughout the limbic system. And what it is believed to do is help mediate post-angiogenic effects of stress. Now, by contrast, 
the neurotransmitter action on the CRF2 receptor, which I mentioned briefly a few minutes ago, it involves more discrete regions or nuclei of the CNS in the limbic system. And it might actually reduce anxiety-like behavior, but in a delayed fashion. So this is going to involve the thalamus, the septum, as well as the dorsal rafe, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, and the lateral dorsal tegmental nucleus, as well as the lateral hypothalamus, and of course the pituitary and the thalamus itself. Okay, so those are the regions of the brain we're talking about. Now, the HPA axis is an essential component of an individual's capacity to cope with stress. So you get excessive stimulation of the axis, and when that can occur, especially when it's chronic, has been implicated in major depressive disorder. Hyperactivity of the HPA axis is observed in majority of patients, in fact, with depression. Okay, Manifested by an increased expression of the CRF in the hypothalamus, and increased levels of CRF in the cerebrospinal fluid, where it can be detected by a spinal tap. You get reduced feedback inhibition of the axis by CRF and indeed by the downstream glucocorticoids when there's a chronic event occurring, such as an MDD. Although the molecular basis of those derangements of that axis are not all that well discerned at this point, the results tend to suggest numerous clinical associations with CRF that seem to recognize the normalization of the axis as being a necessary step for at least a stable remission of depressive symptoms. Now, in animal models, hypercortisolemia can potentiate ex excitotoxicity of the hippocampal pyramidal neurons. And of course, that's evidenced by dendritic atrophy and spine loss, dendritic spine loss. Sometimes you also get apoptosis. It also inhibits the, the generation of new granule cell neurons in hippocampal dentate gyrus, gyrus talked about last time, the DG. And a lot of those changes can be prevented by sometimes straightforward antidepressant treatment. It depends, of course, on what antidepressants being used. Now, excessive glucocorticoids could be, in fact, correlated for small reductions in hippocampal volume that have indeed been reported in patients with depression or also with PTSD. Okay, so this is a lot of clinical studies that feed back into some of the biology. So remember this, the CRF biology, CRF or CRH, that's the releasing factor hormone, the same thing. And the major role of CRF is to prepare an organism for an appropriate response, such as a stressor, such as particularly physical trauma, but also to result in insults to the immune system. And even sometimes it's believed the more nuanced social interactions. So as you might understand, there's a tonicity around the CRF axis. So you're going to have hyper and hyposensitivity. And, the, and that's where it's believed when you move off those margins is where you get the human psychopathologies of anxiety, that is general anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, and even sometimes um, overeating or anorexia have been linked to this 
uh, axis. Now the CRF axon terminals are of course widely distributed in the brain. You have major CRF action with the monoamine nuclei, but it's widespread throughout the cortex, including regions that are of course critical for executive function. Now those regions include the locus coriolis or the LC, the dorsal rafe, DR. Uh, those two nuclei represent primary sources, of course, of norepinephrine and serotonin to the cortex, respectively. So there's a very narrow range of endogenous CRF levels, and they are going to give you distinct non-monotonic effects on processes that are otherwise modulated by norepinephrine and by 5-HT, which is serotonin. Because, obviously, you're getting differential expression of the receptors, okay? And so you get differential expression of receptors either in the locus coriolis or in the dorsal rafe. And because of that, you're going to have those two modes, that latent slow decline or that rapid induction of the response that's necessary because of the stress phenomena. Now superimpose on that because you're also innervating the prefrontal cortex and executive decision, you're going to involve the faculties of imagination and understanding because those are going to be cognitive and those cognitive interactions are going to play a role chronically over time. In fact, over the lifespan of a person, how they respond to certain stress stimuli. Okay. All right. Now, this locus coriolis NE system regulates arousal and a diversity of state-dependent, uh, what are known as behavioral and physiological functions. For example, like with moderate arousal, right? The LC neurons display moderate levels of tonic firing and a robust phasic firing when you get some kind of salient sensory event and indeed sensory dependent decisions, which are coming from the executive role of the prefrontal cortex. And then those decisions turning into agency, all linked back to this locus coriolis norepinephrine system. Now, when you get higher arousal conditions, now that's normally considered apparently in psychology and psychiatry as stress, right? The LC neurons can actually display elevated tonic firing and a weakened phasic firing. Now, that's really interesting. So the tonic fire, in other words, you have a higher baseline threshold. And because of that, the potential to change that amplitude above that threshold is suppressed. So they call that a weakened phasic firing, firing of the neuron. So... LC axonal projections into the medial prefrontal cortex modulate many cognitive processes. They include very discernible things in, in, uh, in psychiatry, that is working memory, sustained attention, and of course, the flexible attention you need based on a stress induction or incursion. Now, under moderate rates, of LC activity and therefore norepinephrine release, right? You get a high affinity postsynaptic alpha-2 adrenergic receptor 
that is going to be uh, reacting with the norepinephrine. That's going to be in the prefrontal cortex. These are all going to be preferentially engaged in promoting working memory. Those are moderate rates of LC activity in any release. But under conditions associated with elevated LC firing and an activation of lower affinity alpha-1, not alpha-2, but alpha-1 adrenergic receptors, working memory becomes impaired while the flexible and focused attention are improved. So what that suggests is that the LC projections to the prefrontal cortex are modulated because of free will decision-making of the executive agency. And that's going to modulate differently those cognitive processes in what we call a context-sensitive manner. So the latter mechanism could correlate with the experienced rapid response, such as fight or flee decision-making upon immediate threatening danger, right? That sensation, perception, recognition, and response behavior. So sensation, perception, recognition, and response behavior all work sequentially from those neuronal loci post-encounter to the stimulus. And as such, I think fit very well into Kantian epistemology, which of course obtains the following. The individual is presented with a particular stimulus or sense data. In Kantian epistemology, they call he calls that an intuition. Different use of the word than we use today. Now that is process, that sense data or intuition, which is basically a representation of a phenomena, is processed by the faculty now of the understanding. These are again are Kantian terms, but they overlap well into uh, neuropsychiatry, as you see here, if you know the two different corpus of literature like I do. So within that particular faculty of understanding, it comes in as a perception of danger in association with what I'm calling a concept abstracted from previous experience. That's why this is an epistemological record, right? Now, this representation is then acted upon, and the neural network, which is already poised to respond, what I was just describing to you about the various nuclei and the various neurotransmitters being generated, it's poised to respond sequentially, so it follows suit and ultimately directs the motor cortex to act, all within, under control of the aegis, of the prefrontal cortex, executive decision-making of the agent that's responding. Now, my argument is that if this was completely deterministic phenomena, each of those events would need to work independent of the individual's sensation or what Kant would call um, the intuition, the sense data. So once that intuition of sense data is received, It's up to the individual to respond. And thus the sense data is electrochemically reported because you generate an electrochemical current, right? You're generating a firing of the neuron by noticing something and thinking it and responding to it. It's reported to the locus coriolis and the system then becomes engaged to fire a response by reinforcement of translated raw sense data which is what the agent is 
experiencing. And that's done by the active will engaging the faculty of the imagination, which is noticing these new phenomena. Imagination, I call it that because imagination is populated by ideas and ideas are individual discrete experiences of things that have happened before, the things that are happening now. So from that faculty of imagination, coupling to the faculty of the understanding, which is populated by concepts, which are abstracts of reality, or at least of thinking, then you predicate the response. That's how the response is predicated. Okay? So I hope you followed that. That's where, that's where I'm coming from. So I told you at the beginning of these discussions of fear that I was, when I started at the beginning, I gave you a Frank Herbert quote. I told you when I found it uh, necessary, that is, I find it necessary to bring it back into our discussion, I would. And that's what I'm going to do right now. Remember one part of that quote. I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Now, add to that the great African Roman philosopher of the late 4th century, 5th century, named Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. He obtains that evil is the absence of good, right? So I'm extrapolating here, but I say fear is the absence of agency. Therefore, the Frank Herbert quote is coherent, right? It says the fear is gone and it will be nothing because in Augustine's uh, philosophy, fear is an absence of something, so it is nothing. Well, he says evil, I'm superimposing fear. And we know that fear stops thinking. I just told you that's what was seen in the animal models from previous lecture. That's actually what happens with humans. So controlling that fear response allows the agent to be critically thinking and respond to it. If you don't, you end up uh, maybe not surviving. So uh, let me see where we are on time here. Yeah, we're good. Now I'm going to go back into a little bit about uh, into psychiatric literature and into neuroscience also. <clears throat> From them, I can tell you this. Learned behavior includes a discriminate, discriminatory learning. And what they mean by that is the subject learns to respond to a limited range of sensory characteristics. Okay, so discrimination learning is you're in an environment and you learn to respond not to everything in the environment. For example, the color of the wall, if you're in a room, or maybe the leaves moving when you're sitting in a park or out in the mountains. Maybe you're not going to respond to that because you're also responding to an avalanche coming down the mountain, which is much more uh, important and you have to respond to with immediacy. Right? But imagine when you're sitting anywhere, there are literally millions of, of sense stimuli that are firing into your neural cortex, but you're only noticing that which you decide to pay attention to. So what I'm trying to do is take the neuroscience uh, literature, the neuropsychiatric literature, philosophy, and then regular biochemistry and fuse together a theory on how this actually works, right? All right, so... <clears throat> 
concept formation then, according to the neuropsychiatrist literature, is a process of sorting experiences according to related features. So that is my Kantian delivery of having abstract concepts coming from what he called, and what I don't mind calling as well, the faculty of uh, the understanding, right? And that involves, as you see, and this is right out of the psychiatry literature, problem solving, perceptual learning. And what is perceptual learning? That's, that's taking the idea representation, or that is the immediate effect, right? That intuition and translating it into an abstract. And so that's like saying you're taking the effects of a past experience and associating it with a sensory perception. And then you also, of course, get psychomotor learning, such as playing piano, right? Or learning how to cut down a tree or how to split wood correctly, correctly so you don't cut your leg off or you don't constantly hit the wood and yet you never split a piece of it, right? Now that involves the development of a basic neuromuscular pattern in response to the same sensory signals that end up going through the prefrontal cortex, the limbic system, and all the associated um, central nuclei that link the neurotransmitters and growth factors, as well as hormonal regulation that goes from the sensory cortex all the way through the periphery of the body. Right? So extra-dimensional learning, which is something else the, you find in the neuroscience literature, extra-dimensional learning, also known as just EDS, that involves receiving input stimuli within a background of a lot of non-related white noise that nevertheless you attend to and deal with as a free agent, okay? So this is in the literature, in the neuropsychiatric literature. So I'm going to leave you with this last little bit of this discussion. A paper that was published in Schizophrenic Research back in 2007 was trying to look at people with schizophrenia and determine why they had a problem with dealing with stress responses. So they were, they were trying to sort out this extra-dimensional shifting which is the stage of any given task where a specific stimulus dimension has to be attended to, right? Versus just compound discrimination, which is looking at all the things that are occurring around you. And what they found that people with schizophrenia could not deal with this extra event occurring. They couldn't do extra dimensional shifting. And they think it has something to do with a dorsolateral prefrontal cortical lesion that may be associated with schizophrenia. Okay. So you get where I'm coming from there, right? You see how I'm linking back the neuropsychiatric literature and, we're gonna, and getting right back into talking very soon, next time, in fact, on the CRF locus, right? Now, the reason I keep on talking about the CRF is because as people age, one of the hallmarks, again, is a corruption of that uh, cortical uh, response to stress that leads to a corruption of CRF, ACTH, and cortisol linear axis progression. And that can lead to abrupt and inappropriate fear, which then inhibits 
the prefrontal cortex from carrying out executive decision-making. And maybe that links then because of lack of use to uh, apoptosis and neurodegeneration. And this could be one of the aspects of aging linked to neurodegeneration, the loss of faculties of memory and learning. And that's where ultimately I wanna go, right? That's where we're headed in this series of lectures. So um, I think I'm gonna leave it at that because if I go into the next topic, it's more big directly into um, the biochemical pathways. And I want you to digest what I talked about earlier today and in in this lecture get this uh, uh, worked out as well as you can. And then when I get back to it, then we're gonna start filling in all the pieces from the level of a biochemist, okay? So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studio in the beautiful Inland Northwest on a very warm, windy day, um, saying bye um, for now. <laughs>